Well, it's always a joy to be with Grace Church. Uh, Kira and I love uh, this congregation. We uh, pray for you regularly. Uh, as a matter of fact, Thursday, I'm praying for your pastors in Grace Church, and I'm, I'm so thankful uh, for you and for the impact you've made on my life over the years, and I thank you for your partnership in the gospel of Christ. Well, let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to look in verses 11 through 25. And in reading First Peter over and over and thinking about it, meditating on it, I, I think this passage is central to our understanding what does it mean to really walk with the Lord? How do we do that? How does that, how does that work out in very practical fashion? Uh, I think sometimes we can... Think about the Christian life, and especially, we, I mean, these first two verses, 11 and, and 12, uh, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, and we go, okay, how am I going to do that? Well, he explains it, and that's what I want us to see, and we'll, we'll notice that Peter gives some explanations in real-life situations for how Christ's life works out in and through us, how that cross-evidence life is real. So hear God's word as it begin in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as to the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves to, of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threat, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, very critical, so that 
we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This is God's word, and may he write that word on our hearts. Well, as Peter writes this epistle, he mentioned that these believers might be going through some hard times, various trials, as he called it. Well, that would have been very natural because they were living under the rule of Nero, who was ruling over the Roman Empire. They were part of this empire in ancient Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And while Nero was brilliant and gifted, he grew suspicious of everyone around him, even putting to death some of his own household because he felt like they were a threat to him. His indulgence in gratifying the flesh was legendary. His cruelty towards those he deemed to be enemies of the state and a threat to him was even more legendary. One ancient Roman historian, Tacitus, who was unsympathetic toward Christians, recorded how Nero looked for scapegoats to counter the rumors of his involvement in burning Rome. And this is what Tacitus wrote. Therefore, to scotch the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices whom the crowd styled Christians. And then he went on to describe what happened to these Christians being arrested and the charge was hatred of the human race. Can you imagine that? That's what Christians were charged for. He goes on and says, And their death was made a matter of sport, or were fastened to crosses and set on fire in order to serve as torches by when daylight failed. It was felt that they were being sacrificed not for the common good, but to gratify the savagery of one man. And so Tacitus says, these Christians were being charged for hatred of the human race. Now, why was that? Well, because Christians refused to engage in the idolatrous lifestyles of the Romans. I mean, to be a Roman meant that you were idolatrous. They couldn't separate their, their religion and their idolatry from the social activities and their employment and their political life. If you were a, a loyal Roman, you were a follower of idols. But living as Christ followers meant a different citizenship. They were strangers and aliens, uh, as, as Peter puts it, living on mission for Christ in the world. The way to a faithful Christ life could only happen through these believers learning to live in dependence upon Jesus and his redemptive work. And it's in these struggles that Christians learned the practical outworking of the theological foundation of the gospel. You see, Jesus' death and resurrection doesn't just get you to heaven. It does that. Thank God. We are rejoicing in God's mercies in that. But Jesus' death and resurrection enables us to live as his holy people until we get to heaven. That, that's cross work in real time. His work doesn't paper over the blemishes and bad habits while leaving us as the same people. He affects us with cross work. He changes us with the resurrection life so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He saves us to be like him. 
to conduct ourselves in every sphere in which we're living as those, as he puts it earlier in this chapter, who are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, a people who are proclaiming his praises because we've been delivered from darkness and now we're living in his marvelous light. And you may think, okay, that's the ideal. Reality is different. No use being unrealistic about daily life. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, real hope to live a genuinely new life is found. And this is what we see in this text, that Jesus died and rose so that we might live daily in the Christ life. And that's what I want us to think about. How does that cross-evidencing life work out into daily habit and daily practice, daily reality? I want us to think about that first with an exhortation that we'll see in this text, verses 11 and, and 12, and then two examples in verses 13 through 20, and then Jesus' provision beginning in verse 21 going to the end of the chapter. So first is the exhortation to live the Christ life. We're on the heels of Peter unpacking the power of the gospel to save us and unite us, that is to unite all who have tasted that the Lord is good, as he says in verse 3. And we're called a spiritual house. We're a holy priesthood. We're offering up spiritual sacrifices of life and worship and witness to God through Jesus Christ. We've been born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, he says in chapter 1. And in that act, Jesus changes our natures, our affections, and our minds because we've been captivated by him. And so the new normal for Christians is to live the Christ life. And by that, Christ is all to us. Christ is being formed in us. Christ's character is being worked in us and working out of us. Christ is shaping us to mirror him. Christ becomes our treasure and our joy in the whole of life. But sometimes we need some reminders, don't we? I mean, we we still have the patterns and trappings of the old life that are mapped in our minds, and so often we slip into practices that do not look like Jesus. But we can't be satisfied when that happens. As a matter of fact, I'd say, if you are satisfied when that happens and it does not grieve you, you're probably a Christian. You're just masquerading. And this is where Peter just cuts to the chase in verses 11 and 12, and he calls for three actions that need to be part of our lives every day. The first one is, remember your nationality. Look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. There's your nationality. You're aliens and strangers, and so now you are to abstain from the fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Well, these believers lived in the Roman Empire. Some of them had Roman citizenship, but Peter's saying, your real citizenship is not in Rome. Brothers and sisters, I would say, your real citizenship is not in the United States of America. Your real citizenship is in heaven as Paul wrote, where we eagerly wait for a Savior from there to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, they were still in the world, but they did not belong to the world, meaning that though living in the world, 
doesn't mean caving to the world and its practices. And so he calls Christians aliens and strangers. So if you look around this room, there's a whole bunch of aliens and strangers or strangers and exiles, as another translation calls it. So that we are to remember our homeland. We're to remember where we who are in Christ will spend eternity. We're to remember where our Savior and Lord is preparing a place for us and will one day return and gather us to himself forever. Remember your nationality and live like you're a citizen of heaven. That's what Peter is exhorting. Now, I think this hits home because one of the adversary's shrewdest devices is to make the world around us so enchanting and so inviting that we spend very little time thinking about our real citizenship in heaven. I mean, there's so much to do. Heaven would just be boring. There's so much to see as though there are no new vistas made and created by the infinite imagination of our God in heaven. So much to enjoy here as though Jesus' joy is a thimble compared to the ocean of the world. Don't you see the devices of Satan? That's why you read Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and you hear the words uh, of John and Paul using otherworldly kind of language to try to describe the atmosphere of heaven. I mean, why did they use such imaginative language? One reason is to get us to longing to be where we really belong in the very presence of our Lord and to not be duped by that which will not last. Remember your nationality by learning to feel the pull of the blessed hope of the Lord Jesus that has been secured for us. But second, engage in the battle. And you see this again in verse 11. I urge you as aliens and strangers, and here's the battle, to abstain from fleshly desires, fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul. So there's a battle raging, and that battlefield is in your mind and soul. Now, one of my favorite resources on this is John Bunyan's Holy War, and it's an allegory, and Bunyan just opens up and helps us to see this battle. So I'll just put that as an aside. But these fleshly desires, these sinful desires, the the passions of the flesh, as some of our translations put it, exist within us. Now, we have, as Christians, new natures in Christ, yet we still live in the same body. And Paul makes this kind of distinction in Romans 6, uh, in in verse 6, and then uh, later in verses 12 and 13. In verse 6, he says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him. That's that old nature was crucified with him. So that the body ruled by sin, that is the bodies that we continue to live in, might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. And so he's given this description. Christ has dealt with that old nature. He's put it to death, but you're still living in a body that's subject to death. You're still living in a body that's still affected by sin. You're still living in a body that has these patterns that are rolling through your mind, but the work of Christ is such that he renders that powerless so that sin will not enslave you. 
But that doesn't mean we can be passive to this truth. Verses 12 and 13 in Romans 6, Paul said, Therefore, because of this, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it, any parts of your body, your eyes, your ear, your tongue, your mind, your feet. Do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. You see, the cross work of Jesus conquered that sinful nature and shut down its power plant and he put a new desire and a new affection in us but you're still living in this mortal body this body subject to death this body still affected by the the pull of the fall and and so uh, here you have this mortal body and yet in this mortal body you're being inhabited by the person of Jesus Christ you didn't get a, a new brain when you came to Christ. You've got that same brain, but you've got a new nature that affects that same old brain. And that new, that brain, that mind, as Ephesians 4.23 says, needs to be continually renewed. We're to be renewed in the spirit of the mind, which means you and I can't be passive about sinful desires that still lurk in our thoughts. We, we can't just let that go and say, ah, no big deal. I'll go ahead and, and think garbage all the time. No, no, no. We, we can't be passive about sinful habits that cling to us. We can't be passive about the godless attractions that once held our affections, but now you see them for what they are. They're completely antithetical to the Christ life. Your progressive sanctification, your, your growth in holiness renews your mind by that gospel-centered word, by the work of the Holy Spirit, and by your regularly engaging in the practice of spiritual disciplines. And so Peter says, take action, abstain, hold yourselves away from these fleshly desires. So how do you do that? L let me mention three things that I think are helpful for our daily practice. One, you recognize sin for what it is. You recognize sin for what it is. It is the enmity, the divider, the enemy against God that put Jesus on the cross. It is the manifestation of the spirit of the world through transgressing God's law. You see, you don't put a veneer over your sin and make it respectable. You don't excuse and, and misuse Christian liberty by excusing your sinful practice under the guise of freedom in Christ. Now, I think that is one of the most common sins that we see happening now. I mean, what should be your standard for abstaining from sinful desires? If it doesn't look and act like Jesus, then it's sin. That's our standard, brothers and sisters. Second, you discipline yourself to daily die to sin. Paul said in three memorable words in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die daily. Paul, how do you live? By dying. Dying every day. What you're doing, you're applying the work of the cross. You're recognizing and confessing that Jesus did the cross work to set you free from everything that doesn't look like Jesus. 
And here is where the word and prayer and meditation and confession and corporate worship and coming to the Lord's table help you to die to sin because all of those are being used of the Lord to bring us back to the power of Jesus' death on our behalf. Third, you focus on whatever is opposite of that sin that you're struggling with as the graces in which to live. For instance, if you're struggling with selfishness, what do you do? You turn toward being generous. You, you work on generosity. If your eyes are straying to impure things, then you refocus on that which is good and lovely and excellent that the Lord has given to you. If you're struggling with anger, then you focus on Christ's forgiveness and you focus on gratitude for his love for you in your own sin. If you're, if you're struggling with selfishness, then you focus on serving others. The third thing that we see, we not only recognize our nationality and engage in the, uh, in the battle, but third, live in the mission. We see this in verse 12. Uh, Peter exhorts us to mission. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, negatively, he says, you are to abstain from the sinful patterns and practices of the old life. You're a new person in Christ. You're being renewed in the spirit of your mind. Positively, he says, we pursue doing good things that bring glory to Christ. Now, we don't do that for merit. We, we don't gain a higher standing with God for any good thing that we do. You cannot get a higher standing than what you have in Christ. He is our righteousness. And so you, you do these good things out of gratitude to the Lord for saving mercy. So what, what kind of good things does, does he have in mind? Will you love those who are unlovable? You serve the poor and the widows and the downtrodden. You give generously of your time to help others. You participate cheerfully in giving your resources for local church and kingdom work. You speak kindly to the unkind. You encourage those the Lord brings your way. You pray for those who are in need. You visit the sick and the lonely and the grieving. You call a church member to check on them, even at someone you don't even know well. And you call and you encourage them. You do orphan care. You take a meal to a neighbor. You mow your neighbor's lawn. You pray for people in your neighborhood. You compliment a stranger in the workplace. You treat your fellow employees with kindness. You're diligent in your work. You're exemplary in your speech. I mean, we can just keep going on and on. It's just shorthand for saying, just act like a Christian in everything you do. I mean... Peter is heightening this as part of our Christian mission. It is something of the overflow of Christ's life within us. You don't do it for show. You just do it because it's natural. It's supernaturally natural to you as the outworking of the life of Christ. But the reality is that those around you will notice your behavior because it's not normal. Brothers and sisters, we don't need to be normal. Jesus was not normal. Being like him is not going to be normal. Others see that, and they don't have an explanation for it. They don't understand how you grieve 
in a way that joy is working through. They can't understand that. that they don't understand how you go through some trial and difficulty or diagnosis, and yet there's this joy, there's this hope radiating in your life. They can't figure that out. But Peter said, that's the way you conduct yourselves. So all those who've been looking at you and ridiculing you and considering you as being evil and and slandering you as evildoers, he says, when they, uh, because they see your good deeds, they glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, what, what does it mean by that? I think it means when they stand before God, your gospel witness of a life that has been transformed has deeply impacted them, and then they hear the gospel and believe. As Tom Schreiner puts it, God is glorified when people believe. And conversely, those who refuse to believe do not glorify God. And he is glorified on the day of visitation, the day of judgment, when there are those who see your witness and they believe the gospel of Christ. Um, Karen and I listened to an interview that Colin Hansen did on the Gospel Coalition with um, a professor uh, by the name of Molly Worthen from University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She's a historian, and her work has focused on evangelicalism, and she's written about it for years, and, and she approached her work as an agnostic, uh, though, uh, and even though she was not persuaded by the gospel, she, she was not belligerent, but still she was digging around as a historian would do. And so she was commissioned to write a, a journal article about Summit Church and J.D. Greer up in, in Durham, North Carolina. And she had earlier joined an Episcopal church thinking that she needed some kind of religion, and she said she was more inclined to the high church liturgy. So let's just say that high church and Summit are not confused in the least bit. And, and so in a side comment, she said that the high church liturgy made her focus on the beauty and poetry of the, of the historic Christian liturgy. And she said that the worship at the Summit Church caused her to focus on Jesus. Hmm, get that. So she attended services. She listened to sermons. She watched the people. She had conversations with people. She interviewed staff before she ever talked to, uh, to Pastor J.D. Greer. And she couldn't explain away, despite her antipathy toward the worship service and the worship style and the gospel preaching, she couldn't explain away what she saw in the people. She discovered their mission work. She saw how they worked with local uh, impoverished schools in their area and how they worked with the poor and how they planted churches and how they were generous in serving, and it caught her attention. And so she wanted to get to the bottom of it. Why are they doing these things? And she began to have conversations with J.D. and it turned to the gospel and J.D. Uh, engaged Tim Keller who, who was obviously living at the time, engaged him on that and they were having conversations with, uh, with uh, Molly Worthen about this and she began reading the Bible and she was reading theology and she came to faith in Christ while she was writing an article to critique this church and would you know it, she got baptized as a believer in a Baptist church. That's what Peter's talking about. That's 1 Peter 2.12 in action. So do you realize the impact of your conduct to those around you? 
whether it's in the workplace, you're the employer or you're the employee, or at school, you're the teacher, you're an assistant, you're an administrator, or you're a student, or in the home, whether you're a spouse, a parent, or a child, or, or in a restaurant, you're serving or you're being served, or doing business, or in the hospital, you're a patient or you're working there, you're shopping, you're engaging in sports. I mean, does your behavior look enough like Jesus to point others to him? Abstain from fleshly desires, remembering who you are, and like one captive by the Lord Jesus Christ, conduct yourselves in an exemplary way. But how does it work out in real time? Second part of this text, verses 13 through 20, we see two examples that bring us into reality. Now, Peter actually gives three examples. This bleeds over into chapter 3 uh, in verses 1 through 7. And I, and I think the passage continues to amplify in verse 8 where, where he wraps this up. But uh, in any case, he gives two examples in the normal sphere, in the public sphere and then in the home in verses and in marriage, verses 3 through or chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And then he gives an example that people just didn't discuss, household slavery. And so let me give you two caveats. One, I'm not going to address the First uh, Peter 3, 1 through 7 passage, but it's the same context in which he's describing how the Christ life works out in your home just like it does in other, in other spheres. You say, well, why do you, why do you say that? Look what he says in verse 1, chapter 3. In the same way. In the same way as what? The same way he just got through describing in chapter 2. Look at verse 7. You know, first, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands. Uh, verse 7, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. So he's not jumping to a new subject. He's showing us how our sanctification works out in the spheres of life. The second caveat I'm not going into detail to discuss political issues, thank God, uh, because that misses the point of this passage. Nor am I going to work through the historical tragedy of slavery and the Christian response to it, because that's not even Peter's aim at this point. Now, obviously, Peter was not pro-slavery, but he realized that many slaves were living under the weight of indignity, so how would the Jesus life in them work out of them? How would they focus on Christ in the midst of it? Well, what he's doing, he's showing us that when cross work is at work in you, it bears evidence in your life and it's going to show up in every sphere of your existence. So first, living under governmental authority, verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, he doesn't suggest that political opinions become the criteria for submitting to what Paul calls God-ordained authorities. He says, here's your criteria for the Lord's sake or on account of the Lord were to exercise submission. And so we remember that we're aliens and strangers, and yet that doesn't excuse us from being models of civility and citizenship even when it's difficult. Verses 13 and 14, whether, he says, you do this whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Now, Nero was the emperor, 
And while you may have strong opinions about who sits in the White House in any given election cycle, none of them can compare to Nero for cruelty, brutal narcissism, and deceit. And yet it was in that setting that Christians were called to submitting themselves to governing authorities. Peter Davids reminds us, it is because of Christ, not Caesar is Lord, that one submits. So in other words, as a manner of the outworking of Christ's lordship, we trust him even in the way we respond as citizens. And in doing so, Peter tells us in verse 15, for such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, it's, it's sad to say, but Christians had a bad reputation in the Roman Empire, not because they were doing bad stuff, but because they were so abnormal from the rest of the Romans. They were accused of incest because of all this talk about brothers and sisters and these relationships and loving others. They were accused of cannibalism because the world couldn't understand the Lord's Supper. They were accused of anarchy because they didn't offer incense and prayers before statues of Caesar. And, of course, all this, as Peter says, was the ignorance of foolish men. Since Christians are abnormal to the world, the world doesn't have the faculties to understand who we are and what we're about. It's not because they're unintelligent. It's not that at all. It's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.14, that if the Spirit of God is not dwelling in you, you cannot understand spiritual things. I mean, even to the point of considering those things to be foolish. So if some, some of you maybe are listening to what I'm saying today and you're saying, I think this guy's totally off his rocker. He's absolutely crazy. It's an indication that you lack the spiritual clarity to understand because the Holy Spirit's not dwelling in you. And yet, even in understanding that, is an act of God's mercy to show you so that you might call out to Christ for his saving mercy. So how are we to act? Verse 16, act as free men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. This is where Christian liberty has got to be better understood in our day. I mean, I hear so much talk about, man, I am free in the Lord. Yes, you are. But do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. Use it as bond slaves of God. And so Peter warns against our freedom in Christ from sin, from the law, from other lords being misused by self-gratifying indulgences. Let me put it like this. If you're more concerned about what you consider as your freedom than you are concerned about looking like Jesus, you fail to understand what it means to be free in Christ. Freedom, as one writer put it, is not release from bondage to a state of autonomy, but release from bondage to become a slave of God. That's what Peter is saying. As Romans 6.22 explains it, but now... Since you have been set free from sin and have, and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit which results in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. So how do we act then? He says, honor all people. But Lord, some people are jerks. Some people are, are just mean. They're scoundrels. 
honor all people. Love the brotherhood, the brothers and sisters. Fear God. And lo and behold, honor the king. But Lord, you can't mean that. That's Nero. Honor the king. You see, we live the Christ life trying by the grace of God to mirror the attitudes, the character, the speech, the generosity and kindness of the Lord Jesus to those around us, even with those with whom we disagree. Second, he describes enduring in settings that are outside your control. And we see this in verses 18 to 20. And we should be careful about fitting the 21st century understanding of the British and American evil and godless institutions of shadow slavery into that first century framework of slavery. And yet there's still some similarities. People were slaves. They were held against their will. They were denied rights of citizenship. They were treated as a subpar class uh, with most of them spending their lives in servitude. These first century people that were slaves in this particular term that's used as household slaves is different than the the more common term doulos that we see translated as slaves. And they, uh, they were kidnapped. They were being punished for crimes. They were slaves by military capture. They were traded in piracy and, and slave trading. But two big differences. In, in the first century, slaves were not bound because of racial discrimination. Nationality, yes, because they were being conquered, but not due to race. And second, the non-agrarian slaves were encouraged to get all the education they could to, to contribute to their master's needs. So Peter's aim at this point was to call those in household slavery to live the Christ life even when they were enduring distress and suffering. He says, servants, slaves, uh, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And then I think he's opening this up in a broader sense when, whenever suffering and sorrow is happening. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person, he doesn't use that same term here, he just says a person, someone, bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So what, what is he doing? He's rooting this countercultural, this worldly, abnormal endurance in the life of Christ. I mean, someone can maybe easily submit to a good master, but only by the grace of God could someone with an, uh, submit with an honorable heart to someone that was cruel. The word used here, we, we get a word scoliosis from it. So it's the idea of someone that was crooked, that was severe. Did that mean that Peter condoned slavery? Of course not. Uh, he, he's letting the slaves know, though, that their dignity is not found in, uh, in themselves or their circumstances. Their dignity is found in their conscience toward God reigning over even the hard details of life. God sees the injustice. He will avenge them. Verse 20, he says, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. So here you have these, these strangers and exiles living in a foreign land, waiting for the day when the Lord of life will 
bring us home and uh, bring us in, into that sphere of his presence. And yet in the meanwhile, while living out this consciousness of him and living with a heart bent toward obedience to Christ, the Christian is learning to endure hardship. He says, you do what is right, which is Juan Sanchez explains, is a generous posture toward others that shows itself and how we act toward them. It's looking out, as Jeremiah put it, for the welfare of others, even as he told the exiles to do in Babylon. Uh, one of the favorite missionary biographies that I've read is by Darlene Diebler Rose called Evidence Not Seen. And she was a missionary in New Guinea in the, uh, in the 1940s. And she and her husband were captured by uh, Axis powers and, and began their stay as prisoners of war. And she was separated and put in a different camp from her husband. She never felt his embrace again. He ended up dying uh, in the POW camp. And as you can imagine, her captors were, uh, were vicious. They committed all kinds of, of atrocities. And they left the prisoners to live in, in abject squalor and unimaginable horrors. And throughout that time, the Lord just gave her grace. And this is her story of wrestling, this evidence not seen, of the Lord working in her life in the middle of all that was going through and facing hardships and, and watching day, uh, daily death and decay and living with the experience of starvation and brutality. By the grace of God, she endured. And one day she was liberated. Years later, she found out that the cruel commander of the camp that she had personally engaged and he had watched and they'd interacted and she had challenged him. This commander uh, came to faith in Christ. He had watched what God had done in her life. And years later, this man who had, we, we would say, deserved nothing but hell, just like the rest of us do, but particularly deserving hell, the Lord mercifully saved. Why? Because he saw something in her that he could not explain, and the Lord tendered his heart. That's an otherworldly life. That's the Christ life. But how does that happen? Well, this brings us to the last part of this text, verses 21 to 35, and this is, third, the provision of Jesus to live the Christ life. It would be absolutely heartless to stop at this point and leave you weighed down thinking, okay, you've given these exhortations that I'm to abstain from the fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul. I'm to keep my conduct excellent among the Gentiles. I'm to submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution. I'm to honor all people, even the scoundrels. I'm uh, as... A servant, I'm to be submissive to my master with all respect. As I'm going under suffering, I'm to bear up under that time. You've laid all that out. How do I do that? But this is where we see that Jesus provides what we need to mirror his life. Notice first, Christ's call on us. Christ's call on us. Verse 21, for you, is plural here, talking about the church, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So this call of Christ, the internal call by the Holy Spirit, the external call by the preaching 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This call, he says, is for us as we become followers of Christ to live out this life, this Christ life, even when facing opposition and hardship and temptations and suffering and injustices and persecution and sorrow. And so as he speaks to this call, he's showing this is inherent within the gospel. This is contained, brothers and sisters, in the gospel, that gospel seed that's planted in your hearts in the new birth. And so Jesus lived his life in the same kind of setting. So Peter reminds us of Jesus who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And now Jesus is calling us to follow him so that we are shaped by his life in every way, turning from sin, refusing to give the old patterns of sin free reign in our lives. And so it's the example of Jesus that captures us. Now, the word that he uses here, for example, means uh, what was used of someone writing letters for a child to copy. I, I remember many years ago when I was in elementary school, don't remember much about it, but I remember we had chalkboards, blackboards, and on top of those blackboards in those early days were these green panels that had the most beautiful script written. And so as kids, we were supposed to sit at our desk and look at that and copy it, and I'm afraid that didn't work very well with me. I needed something more like what he's talking about that we have now. We have these nice notebooks, and you have dotted lines, and you're teaching your children how to do script, and so they're, they're tracing those lines. Now, do they begin and do it perfectly? No. They're scratching all over the place, and they're zooming here and there. But as they practice and practice and practice, those lines are helping them learn the patterns of that beautiful script. Well, in, in the same kind of way, this ongoing practice of following the example of our Lord is training our minds to act and obey and speak in, in the same way as our Lord Jesus so that we are tracing our lives in Jesus' holy and good life. And this sanctifying practice is enabled by Jesus, by the Spirit indwelling us. We, we can only do that if we're paying attention to Jesus in the Word. This Christ-centered book from Genesis to Revelation, this Jesus-revealing book, and as the Spirit of God is working in our life, and so we are learning to follow his steps as we pray and face hardships and experience injustices and we go through suffering and we encounter temptations. And he's calling us in all of that to his cross life. He said, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Notice, how Jesus took, in verse 23, the, the countercultural or otherworldly path. He said, uh, Peter writes, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. Or so he was insulted, so he didn't insult in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. This is where we're learning to trace our lives in the life of Christ. This is where we are, are learning as Jesus did that he was so conscious of the father's faithfulness uh, that whatever injustices that he faced Jesus would refuse to respond 
to verbal insults and threats with, when he was suffering physically. How did Jesus do that? Peter says he kept entrusting himself to the Father. He, he kept doing that. He kept doing that. And that's the picture. This, this verb tense is describing a continuous action in, in past tense. And so you take a, the, a look at Jesus' life, and he kept giving himself over to the Father giving himself over to the Father. And so what do we do today? We give ourselves over to him. What do we do tomorrow? We give ourselves over to him. What do we do the next day? We give ourselves over to him. We find Jesus withdrawing to pray. We see him looking to the Father to do his will. He took his cues from heaven, not from the world. And that's what he's calling us to do as we are learning to trace our lives in his life. We're learning to live daily to entrust the hurts and the wounds and the injustices and the sufferings and the agonies to the one who will make all things right. And as we do that, we're tracing our lives by God's grace in Jesus' life. There's Christ's call second. There's Christ's work for us. I mean, we can rightly ask, well, how can we with all of our, all of our tendencies, all of our sinful propensities and weaknesses how can we follow after the Christ life well Peter explains that this Jesus cross work gives us the assurance of the foundation for living the Christ life look at verse 24 I I think this is one of the most important verses in all the word of God so there there's my brief thought about that but notice what he says and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross there's the gospel isn't it Christ bore my sins. Do you know that? Have you experienced by faith putting your trust in Christ as the sin bearer? Well, look what he says happens. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, you might want to circle that, so that, it's a purpose clause, he's explaining, so what happens when Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross? What is the result of that? for us who put our faith in Christ so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. That last phrase is a metaphor for the whole of his redemptive work. What he has done heals these sin-sick souls that we might live for righteousness. And so Jesus' cross work broke sin's power over us so that we learn to live daily in his death and resurrection. That's what Paul was talking about in Romans 6, 11. Uh, Therefore, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You learn to trust in Jesus in his death and resurrection for the power to turn from sin and the power to live in resurrection life. And so bearing our sins on the cross, Jesus took away the judgment against us and he satisfied divine justice and he removed the enmity so that we might be reconciled to God and be declared righteous do you know that is your trust in him and then he called us to be his followers now what what did Jesus do with his followers you remember in John 15 he called his followers his friends he's not a fair weather friend He is the friend who laid down his life for us. Greater love has no man than this, that a man will lay down his life for his friends. And that's what he did. He laid down his life. 
He took away the enmity, the barrier between us and God so that we might be his friends, that we might be his family forever. And what does Jesus do with his friends? He keeps praying for his friends. He meets his friends in trials and temptations and difficulties by the Holy Spirit. And he's not a distant friend. He came near in the incarnation, but ultimately he came nearer when he became sin for us, he that knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He came nearer to us in his cross work so that he affects the renewal of, our, of the spirit of our minds and enables us to put into practice this new self, this new life in Christ that was created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. That's why Paul says in that same context in Ephesians 4 that we're to put away lying and instead speak truth to our neighbors. We're to be angry and not sin. We're not to give the devil a place. We're not to give him any room. We're to no longer steal, but we're to be uh, hardworking and generous. We're to no longer use foul language, but speak what builds others up through gracious speech. He tells us in Ephesians 4, let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. You see, Jesus' death leads us to die to sin. That's the negative of verse 11. And to live to righteousness, that's the positive of verse 12. And that's rooted in this theology of the gospel. We live in Christ because his Christ work, his cross work, affects how we look and respond to sin on one hand and how on the other we follow and respond to him as he is tracing his life in our life. The cross evidence life keeps looking more and more like the Christ life. And so we, we see how Jesus puts this out to us practically. It's his call to us in the gospel. It's his, um, his work in us how he is continually working in us, working this gospel in us. And third, it is Christ shepherding over us to, to seal what he's declared this otherworldly life uh, of Christians. Peter explains in verse 25, for you were continually straying like sheep. Sounds like Isaiah 53 language, doesn't it? But now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian, the pastor, and the overseer of your souls. Jesus took the sin burden of straying sheep and he brought us in glad repentance to live under his faithful shepherding and oversight. And so the good shepherd is with us. His presence is with us. He is protecting us. He is providing for us. The 23rd Psalm is about what Jesus is doing in us and on our behalf. And so he saves us from sin's penalty and power so that we might live under his lordship of faithful love and obedience. And that cross work leads to lordship. And we no longer belong to ourselves. We no longer live to ourselves. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord, Romans 14 tells us. That's the cross evidence life. It manifests itself by Jesus shepherding us 
to live in his green pastures of gospel richness and to drink from his still waters of Holy Spirit refreshment and to eat at his table of his body given in his blood shed for us that we might live for righteousness. Does your life give evidence of the cross of Jesus at work? You don't just have a home in heaven, but you have heaven working into your heart by the effects of Jesus dying and rising and putting his life in you. That's the cross evidence life. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for what you have provided for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for his saving work. We thank you that he takes sinners just like all of us gathered in this room. And by your wonderful mercy and grace, through the instrumentality of repentance and faith, you bring us in relationship to yourself and deal with our sin and deal with divine judgment. And we thank you for that. And we pray for any in this room this morning that have not met you in that saving mercy and grace. We pray for them. We pray that you would open their eyes to the gospel of Christ, that you would awaken them, that you would quicken their hearts and minds to see and believe this person of Christ revealed in the gospel. And we pray for brothers and sisters as we struggle with all the weight of the world around us and we struggle even more with our own selves. We pray that you would help us to be those who live daily in Christ because of all that Christ has done. We pray for grace in that, that we might apply that word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.